Now, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Genesis chapter 41 and Luke chapter 16. And we're continuing in our Dreamer series, and the idea behind this is that for every single person on the face of this earth, God has a dream and a destiny for you. There's something that he has called you to, something that only you can do. You were uniquely and wonderfully made, that God has crafted you, given you gifts, skills, abilities, experiences, and everything else, because he has a plan and a destiny that he's leading you into. But before you can walk into the fullness of your destiny, there are a series of character tests that you have to pass. God will put you through some things to allow what's really inside of your heart to come to the surface. And then if your character isn't strong enough yet for your destiny, he will work on your heart so that he will develop the character in you so that when you receive your destiny, it doesn't crush you or you don't run crazy with it, but you're able to use it for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And today we're going to be talking about the prosperity test. And this is, how is it, um, how do you respond when God causes you to really prosper in incredible ways? What are you going to do with the prosperity that God has given you? Now, Pharaoh has had some disturbing dreams. We were talking about that a little bit in the last few weeks. That he's had some dreams, and he doesn't know what they mean, but he knows that it's not good. And so he's trying to find someone that can interpret the dreams and bring meaning to it so we can understand what God's trying to say to him. And we read about Joseph and how he's summoned to interpret that in Genesis 41, verses 25 through 36. It says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless ears of corn scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of, Egyptian, or of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and stored up in the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. Now what's happening here is Joseph has a destiny. The, the destiny that God is calling Joseph to is to be the one that will save nations from starvation. That's why God has promoted him. That's why God has brought him into the court of Pharaoh. This is the calling. This is what he was born for, what he was made to do. But before he could fulfill that destiny, he had to go through the test of how was he going to respond with all of the prosperity in the seven years that were coming? What was he going to do with that? Now, he could have just taken all that and he could have just squandered it. He could have eaten it himself. He could have sold it for money. And then everybody would have died and he would not have fulfilled his destiny. But instead, he came up with a plan and he used godly principles and godly wisdom to manage the prosperity that God was bringing them so that when the time of famine came, he could fulfill his destiny. He could be the one that God used to save untold thousands and tens of thousands of people. 
And you might be thinking to yourself, this isn't a test that I'm going through because I've never had seven years of great abundance. I don't have barns full of grain at my disposal. But every single one of us is going through the prosperity test every single day of our lives. Uh, We are a filthy, rich people. Now, if we compare ourselves to other nations, this is a way to do it. Because what happens is we compare ourselves to other Americans. And we feel like, man, I'm poor because look what Bill Gates has. I got nothing compared to him. But when we look at ourselves compared to the world, it's a, a completely different story. The United States of America last year, the average income was $53,960. Now, Japan, who we all know is a very prosperous country, uh, they're doing great things, a very strong economy. We think of them as having a very high standard of living. They have an average income of $37,630, which means that we have 43% more income than they do on average. That's huge, 43%? That is a massive difference. United Kingdom, 35,760. Poland, 22,300 a year. Mexico, 16,000. Ghana, 3,800. Nicaragua, $910 a year. Malawi, average income of $750 a year. And in Orissa, where we're supporting the church and where our orphanage is, the average income for someone in that state is less than $500 a year which means that they have less than 1% of our average income. And in the world today, there are 1.3 billion people who live on less than $1.25 a day. 1.3 billion people earn less than $1.25 a day. Do you remember a moment as a kid when you thought you were poor? See, when you're a kid, you don't think about classes or races or anything. You're just kids, and you play together, and you have a good time. Then you begin to grow up, and you start to notice differences between each other. And I remember, I think I was probably in maybe sixth grade, and all, almost all of my friends had gone off to Florida or California, and I think one of them went to Hawaii for a Christmas break, and I was home in Michigan. And I remember thinking, like, why don't we do that? And my parents said, well, we can't afford that. I was like, oh, man, we're poor. That stinks. I never knew I was poor. Would it all make sense now? And I remember feeling really bummed about this. I don't want to tell my parents because I don't want to make them feel bad about the fact that they raised a poor kid. And so <laughs> I'm sharing with my other friend who had just got back from Australia. And I was telling her, I said, you know, I think my family's poor. And she looked at me and she said, Jeremy, you're not poor. You're wearing a Columbia ski jacket. <laughs> I was like, Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. But what's happening is I was comparing myself to other people. Now, that was the moment where I began to realize, maybe I'm rich. And then I remember a few years later, I went to Mexico on my first mission trip, and I began to see what was poor. Like, you know, you drive downtown Detroit, and you think you see poor. Oh, man. You go to Mexico, and you get into the slums there. We went, we were building homes for people on a trash dump. And, I mean, literally, the people lived on a trash dump, and they made little shacks out of pieces of tin and wood that they could make little lean-to out of. And they'd find their food there. They'd scavenge things and sell it to make a living. And I didn't realize that people lived like that. That was my first experience of poverty. We built little shacks for them. They were 10 by 12. They were made out of plywood. Uh, They had one window in them and a door. Most of us would use something like this for a tool shed in our yard. But these were homes that we were building for people. And when we get them done, because it took two days to build it, and they would just weep and they would cry, and there'd be eight, ten people living inside of these things. Because they felt like they were, like we had just blessed them beyond belief. And I remember as I was leaving the country, and I remember, I 
took all of my clothes I had, except for what I was wearing, because I wanted to be able to get back into the United States. But I left all of my clothes there. I left everything that I had there, because my heart was just broken, as I saw a people in such great need, and I saw the way that I was living. I was like, I am rich. I'm prosperous. And that's when it began to start occurring to me, what am I going to do with this prosperity that God has given me? Because every single one of us, just by being an American citizen, and we're rich beyond what most people in the world can even imagine. The standard of living that we have, the opportunities we have, and if you are having tough times, even the social safety nets that are in place in our country, it's just unbelievable the standard of living that we have, but we become so discontent, we begin to think of ourselves as being poor and we're not prosperous because we compare ourselves to the richest of the rich people in the entire world. Instead of looking at ourselves and saying, what is it that the rest of the world looks like? And how blessed am I? How prosperous has God made me? And I'm not saying this to try to make anybody feel bad because your prosperity that you have, that's a God-given gift. That's something that he has blessed you with. But because God gave it to us, it also means that now we're responsible for using that prosperity in a way that lines up with God's will for us. And the way that you pass the prosperity test is you have to pass it by being a good steward. It's important to remember, in everything that we have, we aren't the master, we're the steward. Masters own things. Masters have things. They have possessions. There are belongings that they have. Stewards don't. Nothing that a steward manages is their own. It's something they've been given, something they've been entrusted to, to use for the purpose of bringing gain for their master, for using in a way that will please their master and go about their business. So we have to remember, everything that we have isn't ours, it's God's, and he's entrusted us with it. And that's a really hard thing for us, because what happens is, as soon as you get something, have you ever given a gift to a child? I was at um, Thanksgiving, that's when we just had, and my little cousins are there, not my cousins, my nieces and nephews are there, my cousins are my age. So I'm giving a toy to one of the little nieces and nephews to play with. It's not theirs, it's mine. I'm letting them use it, but then what they do is they get their little hands on it, and they think it's theirs. And then you tell them, hey, can you share that? And they're like, no, it's mine. They, be, they turn into golems, like, my precious. And then you're like, hey, I need that back. And they're like, and they're trying, and they're running around the house, and they won't give you your stuff back. I'm like, who do you think you are? This isn't yours. This is mine. I let you use it for a little bit, but you're not using it properly. And this is what happens is in the prosperity test, when God gives us things to steward for him, the character of our heart is really revealed. And it shows us, are we going to use everything that we have for ourselves, or are we going to use it in the way that God has called us to and be faithful stewards? Because before you can walk into the fullness of your destiny, you have to pass the prosperity test. How are you going to use everything that God has given you? And for us, it mostly focuses around our belongings and our money, because that's how we do business. It used to be that people had, uh, you know, you harvested crops, so you had lots of potatoes, and you would trade your potatoes for other things. But now, thank God, we have money, and we don't have to trade most things anymore. But how are we going to use the money that God has given us? Because until you can use your money in a godly way, you can't walk into the fullness of your destiny. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous money, who will commit to you the trust of true riches? Now, when it says unrighteous money, it doesn't mean money gained by Ill, gain, Ill, Ill means. What it's talking about is it's saying that there's nothing holy, there's nothing sacred about money. It's papers, 
It's coins that represent numbers and banks. It's just money. There's nothing special about it. So if God can't trust us with just money that has no real or eternal value, then how is it that he can trust us with the true treasure of heaven, which is people? God will never allow you to walk into the fullness of your destiny. He will never use you to change the world around you, to bring hope to other people around you, to expand the kingdom until he can first trust you with the finances that you have. He says, until you can do this, I will never trust you with what's really important in the world. So how is it that we be a good steward then and pass this test? The first thing is to put God first. This is the first principle concerning money that God reveals to us in Scripture. And when we look at it, God says, okay, when he's revealing how he wants the Israelites to live, he says, I want you to give me a tenth of all your gain. It's called a tithe. That means 10%. So if you had cardamom, you gave him a tenth of all the cardamom that you harvested. If you had 100 goats, you gave him 10 of those goats. Whatever it was, if someone paid you in cash, you gave him a tenth of your cash. And you guys are saying a tenth? Like, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Well, it depends on how much you have. If you don't have much money, giving 10% away is nothing. It's like, well, I can't do anything with this anyway, so here you go. But if you have money, giving a tenth of it away is like, oh my goodness, Lord, what are you doing to me? I kind of like this. My money's shiny, and I'm going to use it for stuff. But the reason that God said, I want you to give a tenth, or I want you to give a tithe of all of your increase to me and for my purposes, is because God recognizes that there's something wrong with the human heart. What we do is we look to money and we start to latch on to it. We start to hold on to it and we look to money really as our God. We say, as long as I have you know, this money, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be provided for. I'm going to be able to retire well. I'm going to be able to go on that vacation that I want to go on. We look at money and we view it as a source for us. It becomes a solution to problems for us. And we become to grow attached to it. And the more attached we become to our money, the less attached we become to God. Because who's our true source? God. Who's the one that gave us the prosperity? It was God. Who's the one that's our provider? God. Who's the one that's our healer? Who's our protector? God is all of those things, but what happens is we can look to money and make that an idol and say, this is my protector. This is my provider. This is what I really need in my life. And that's why Jesus also says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money, that your heart is going to go towards one or the other. So he creates this principle of tithing so that what happens is you become in the habit of, you know, every time you get your paycheck, whatever, I'm making a sacrifice of this old God, this thing that I'm tempted to want to love and to put my trust in. I'm going to give away part of that. So that that way what happens is it makes you have to say, God, I just gave away 10% of what I had. And I needed that because I might need new tires for my vehicle or, you know, whatever else it is. But I'm going to give 10% of this away and trust you that you are going to be the one who really is my provider. That it never was this money anyway. And so God says, I want you to give me a tenth of everything. But then he also says, I don't want you to just give me a tenth. I want you to give me the first fruits. There's this principle of the first that we see all through scripture. He says, if you have, uh, you know, ten sheep, I don't want you to wait, you know, give me like the junk one. I want you to give me the first one, the best one. So what, there's this principle going on of if you have a firstborn animal, I don't want you to wait till you have 10 sheep and then give me one of them. I don't want you to like, you know, pay all of your other bills and give me the last 10% of your income. I want you to give me that first tenth. And that's almost even more like, God, what are you, why are you doing this to me? This is hard. Can't you just give me my best life now already? But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, by giving me the first, it creates a dependency in you upon me now. 
See, I have a lot of goat stories because I grew up kind of a goat farmer, herder, not sure how you would classify it exactly. But I remember when I got my first goat of my own that wasn't my parents, and my idea was I'm going to use this animal to create wealth for myself. It's going to have babies, I'm going to sell the babies, I'm going to get money, breed the babies, all that stuff. And so I understood that first goat that's born, man, you need that one because that's the one that's going to start everything else off. I might not ha- that goat could die, I could have no more goats. But God says, I want you to give me that first one that's born. Because then you have to trust God to be the one that's going to bring you more. That's a hard principle, is to give God the first of everything that we have. He tells this to uh, Joshua when he's going into the promised land. He says, there are all of these cities that you are going to go into and you're going to conquer, and you can keep everything from them, but the first city that you go into, that that you conquer, I want you to take all of the gold and all the silver, and I want you to put it in the temple, or in the tabernacle at the time, dedicated to me. None of that's for you guys. And so they're like, all right. And so they go there, and you guys know the story of Jericho, these really high, huge walls, and God just miraculously causes the walls to fall down. They don't fight the battle. God delivers the city over to them. And they take all of the gold and the silver, and they set it apart for God, but there's one person who keeps some of it. And he takes it, and he buries it in a hole in his tent. And then they go out there. They've just conquered the city, and they're thinking, yeah, you know, God is blessing us. God is for us. God delivered this city over to us. And they go out to fight some more people, and they get their tails whipped. They're going out there after very small armies, insignificant people, and they're chasing. They have 10 to 1 odds against them, and they're getting driven all across land. They can't beat anybody. And so they come, and they're saying, God, what happened? How come you delivered Jericho over to us, and now all these little kids with slingshots are beating us? And God says, you didn't give me the first. And so they find out that the guy has stolen the silver and he's kept it for himself instead of giving the first to God. And so they give it back to God and then once again they're blessed because here's what's happened. When you put God first, when you give him the tenth, when you give him the first of what it is that you have, he blesses the other 90%. And you're able to do more with a 90% than you ever could with a full 100%. When you give God the first, what it does is it becomes blessed now, everything else that comes after it. It says that the animals, you know, when you gave the first animal or when you dedicated your firstborn son to God, it says that it reconciled everything else that would come after it, that it caused God's blessing to be on everything else that came after it. So when we make God first, everything else that we have is blessed by God. He causes it to prosper. He advances it. But when we hold on to it ourselves and we don't put God first, it says that everything that we have is cursed and it will not prosper. So we put God first. And then you have the other 90% and you think, okay, now I can do the rest that I want with this. But remember, you're not just a steward of the 10% that you give first to God. You're a steward of the full 100%. None of it's yours. So you have to come back and say, God, how is it that you want me to use the other 90% as well? And the first 10 is easy because God's given you very specific directions on what you're supposed to do as a steward with that 10%. But the other 90%, now this is where it takes you really leaning into God, getting vision from him, getting direction from him, and then applying godly principles for how you manage the rest of the wealth and the increase that he brings you. And the second thing uh, that we need to do to be a good steward is we need to make a budget. Now I know that doesn't sound very spiritual. It doesn't, that's the kind of stuff I usually would never want to preach on. It's like, oh, come on, Lord, that's a budget. Anybody can do that. Just pull up your Excel file. There's nothing holy about a budget. But this is what I've discovered. Budgets are deeply spiritual things. 
Because if you don't make a budget, you cannot manage your resources well. And if you can't manage your resources well, you can't pa pass the prosperity test, and you can't walk into the fullness of God's calling on your life. A good steward is someone that has a budget, and a budget will do a few things for you. And the first thing it does is it gives you clarity and objectivity. Joseph didn't just say, okay, a famine's coming, I guess I'll just save some stuff and hope it all works out. No, he had a plan. He said, we are going, if we're going to survive seven years of famine, we need to save X amount for that. If he hadn't saved it, right, if he hadn't planned, if he hadn't budgeted, they would not have made it through. He would not have fulfilled his destiny. The second thing is it helps you examine your priorities. When you look down and you say, this is where all of my funds are going, it shows you what's really important to you. Because you don't spend money on things that aren't important to you. I, lo I love and I hate at the end of the year when you get your credit card statement and mine breaks it down into like food, clothes, gas, you know, different things like that. And you look at it and you see, wow, this is where I spent all my money this year. It's depressing. But if you have a budget, you can say, these are the things that are important to me in life, so I'm going to make sure that I'm budgeting so that my money goes to those things. It also provides accountability. Have you ever tried to diet by yourself or without a plan? And you're like, yeah, I'm going to run like three miles today. I'm going to eat a bunch of carrots. And you're like, yeah, this is going to be fine. And you see cheesecake. I could probably eat a little bit of cheesecake. That won't be too bad for me. And then you're 3,000 calories over your daily intake. You're gaining weight on your diet. A budget will provide accountability to you so that you can make sure that you aren't spending more than you're bringing in so that you can make sure that you are supporting the things that are close and dear to your heart. It also helps you live within your means. It's easy to spend a lot more than you're bringing in. I've helped a lot of people with budgets over my life. And it's amazing how many times you sit down and you say, okay, hey, what's your total income? Okay, let's add up all of your expenses. It's like, your expenses are a lot more than your income. I'm, I don't, I'm not a CPA, but I don't think you can do this for very long. You will end up in incredible debt. And that's the next thing that a budget will help you do is it helps you live without debt. We are an incredibly indebted people. The average American household has $16,000 of credit card debt. Average mortgage debt is $147,000. The average student loan balance is $31,000. The average auto loan debt in a household is $30,000. And 40% of Americans have less than $500 in savings. We got some money issues. We have more money than any other nation, but we have less cash on hand compared to our income than any other nation. Everything that comes in, we're just sending right back out because we haven't developed a budget that allows us to manage the resources that God has given us. I've met so many people, and this is one of the most heartbreaking things, people that God's put a great calling on, and God's leading them into great things. They have incredible character, but because of the debt load they have, they're limited in what they can do. Now, the reason Ann and I were able to come and plant Radiant Church here was because we had no debt, not even home debt. We decided we we're going to live without debt so we can save and we can give lots of away to building orphanages and helping friends and supporting people, being generous. And then when the Lord called us over here, all we had to do was move over here. There was no debt that was keeping us from walking into the destiny that God had called us to. And then it also builds character and discipline in you. When you make yourself have to live a financial discipline in your life, it creates character, it creates discipline. And those are things that you will absolutely need in order to be able to walk into the fullness of God's calling on your life. Now, the third thing you have to do is you have to learn to be content. And this is a little more spiritual sounding. In 1 Timothy 6-10, sorry, 6, 6 through 10, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's a misquoted verse. It says it's the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pains. So contentment is hard for us because it's this moving target. No matter how close you get to your goal, your goal keeps moving. Rockefeller, who was one of the, he was the richest man on the earth at the time, when he was asked, how much more money do you need to be content or to be satisfied? His famous answer was, just a little more. You never reach the point of where you have enough. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. If your idea of what's going to make you content is found in material things, you will never be content. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of stuff that can ever bring contentment to you. However much you have, you'll always want more. The more you have, the stronger the appetite grows because the more empty you feel. And this is what Jesus says. He says, godliness with, great, godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, if you have food and if you have clothes, then you should be content. That's as opposite of the Black Friday mentalities you can possibly get. Food and clothes, that's all. Because he says, if you have me, if you're godly, if you have my presence inside of you, and you have food and clothes, you have everything that you need. You should be content because your contentment isn't found in material things. Your contentment is found in your relationship with me. Your contentment is found in walking out the destiny that I've called you to. Just food and clothes. I know that sounds crazy, but when I've been overseas and I've seen people where they were praying for food and clothes and they had those things, they were the happiest most joyful people I've ever known because they loved Jesus and they recognized his incredible provision in their lives. We are some of the most discontented people on the face of the earth because we're looking to the wrong thing to make us content. And then number four, don't be deceived. Mark 4, 18 through 19 says, Now there, these are the ones sown among thorns. He's talking about the parable of the seeds and the different soils. It says, They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. See, riches are deceitful. They promise you things that they can't deliver. And the desire for the material things, the desire for a constant increase in your money or the love of money is going to continue to lead you away from Jesus. It's going to continue to lead you away from the holy calling that's on your life, from the great destiny that God has called you to. They're deceitful. Money will make you think that you're safe. It'll make you think you're secure. It'll make you think that you have stability in your life. But any of you guys that remember this last depression that we went through and were checking your 401ks at all, you might have felt as nervous as I did when I saw all this money I've been saving for my retirement was suddenly, the numbers were a lot smaller. It's deceiving. Money can't do anything to save you. Money can't do anything to give you hope. Money can't do anything to lead you into godly ways. It can't give you purpose and meaning in your life. That's the great deceit of it. And that's why Jesus says that so many people in the pursuit of, of worldly gain, it says that they've been ensnared, that they've fallen into a pit and they've been pierced through with great pains. 
And that's an allusion to what would happen in the Roman battlefield. You would see someone, you'd think it would be an easy target. And so you'd go after them. We didn't realize that they dug a pit there. And inside of the pit, there were spears that you would fall on and they would pierce you through. And that's what Jesus is saying happens to us when we pursue riches. We see something material, we can, we can go out there and we can get it. It's easy, if I just have this, I'm going to be all right. And then when you go to get it, you fall into the pit and you're pierced through. And you walk away from your faith. Remember, all of this, the way that we manage prosperity, it's a test of our heart. And it comes back to, again, like Jesus said, how can you be entrusted with true riches when you can't manage your money? What is our heart revealing? Or what is the way we manage our money revealing about the condition of our heart? What it is that we really love? Are we honoring God? Are we making him first? Are we being good stewards of everything that he's given us to see the kingdom come and to see it advance, to support the work of missions all around the world, to support the needy inside of our own city? You guys stand up for me as we close this out today. I love that in Jesus we saw the heart of God revealed. It says in 1 Colossians, not 1 Colossians, there's only one. In Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. This is speaking to Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. There's firstborn again. Who was it that God gave to us? His firstborn. So for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. <clears throat> Now, God isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. And that's the great beauty of we see of the tithe and the firstborn in the Old Testament is that it's pointing to Jesus. The time when it says that if you give me the firstborn, that everything else will be reconciled and redeemed. Well, it was an image of what was going to happen when Jesus came. The firstborn of all creation. When God gave him and he laid his life down, it reconciled, it redeemed everything else. And we receive blessing from God because of the sacrifice that he made, because his heart was for us. And this morning, that's the question, is where is our heart? Talking about the pit test, and, you know, the prophetic test, and all those things, those were, those were pretty easy, those were really encouraging. I think the prosperity test in our culture is the one that's really, really hard for us. Because we have so much. And when you have so much, it's so hard to put God first but don't allow this to be something that blocks you from walking into the fullness of your destiny. Don't allow this to be something, don't let the love of money be something that keeps you from having a great and increasing, expanding love for Jesus inside of your heart. Be a good steward. You guys pray with me this morning. God, we're so grateful that it says that you search our hearts and that you know us and that you lead us into your righteousness. And this morning, we ask that you would search our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would make an evaluation of us and that you would speak to us where our hearts are at. Have we been faithful stewards? 
have we been putting you first? Have we been managing the resources well? God, have we found our contentment in you? Or are we chasing a contentment that can never be achieved? God, have we been deceived by riches? God, would you reveal that to our hearts? Not to condemn us or to bring us shame, but to call us forward into the holy calling that we've been set apart for. To work repentance inside of our hearts so that we would come back to you confessing our sin, exalting you, making you first, being good stewards of everything you've given us, Lord, so that we can see the nations come to you. And this morning, if you're far from God, you never knew that he was the firstborn of all creation who through his death on the cross reconciled you to him that redeemed you so that now you can live as a son or a daughter. And that's what the gospel boils down to is that you have freedom, that there's new life, that God has called you to be a part of his own family and you don't have to live distant from God but that you can live with an intimate knowledge and relationship with him. And he wants to work that inside of your heart. This morning, if you feel distant from God, but you want to feel like family and you want to make a decision, Jesus, I repent and I follow you. With every eye closed, you'd be bold enough to raise your hand to say, God, that's me this morning. I'm your son or I'm your daughter and I want to come home to you. I want to be family with you. Thank you. Let's pray this together, church. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again, defeating sin and death. And this morning I repent of my sin. I make you the Lord of my life. I will follow you this day forward. Send me your Holy Spirit. Empower me. Lead me into truth. Make me aware of your sweet presence in my life. And teach me to love you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.